Hey, Melanie. Derek. Good to see you. <laughs> and you. Um, life is good. I'm happy to be with you as always. I'm excited about today's conversation. Today's conversation is going to be interesting. And I don't know if it's going to be intense, but it'll definitely be informative. Um, and I'm looking forward to it as well. Looking forward to hearing from a, a, a new guest, one that I don't know also. The conversation today is, for those who may not have noticed on the card, is reparations versus recovery. And of course, what that means in terms of Black wealth and what that means in the housing market overall. Um, I think that the original conversation around this was probably 40 Acres and a Mule, after the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln and his offer of that and how that just never happened. Reparations went to the white slave owners and the landowners, but never went to the people who worked the land. But um, speaking of the land and speaking of the ties to land, if we sort of fast forward by not quite 100 years, but to like the early 1900s, maybe the 1920s, um, I don't know if you saw this in the news, but there was a case um, about two years ago, where a Black family that had land in Manhattan Beach, California, so it's somewhere near or right outside of LA, they had land um, that was a popular vacation spot for Black families on the West Coast. And at some point, the county came and seized the land, I think through eminent domain, and then instead of doing something with it, they tore, they tore down what was there and they turned it into a park. Mm. And... I think there was a lawsuit. Again, I probably should have researched this a little bit better, but I believe there was a lawsuit. And two years ago, um, the county decided to give the land back, or maybe they sold it back to the family for a dollar. And then fast forward another year, and the family decided to sell the land back to the county for $20 million. Mm -hmm. So it's reparations, I suppose. Um, I don't know. And again, I'm not part of the family. I'm not part of this case. I wasn't involved at all. But there's just something about it that, you know, based upon our other conversations, I was like, I wonder why the family decided not to hold on to the land. Maybe because it was already a park, they decided that it was better just to give it back to the county. Maybe they just weren't in a position to own it, build on it, do something with it. Um, because $20 million, yes, it's a lot of money, but divided over all the, the heirs yes. um, and then going forward over the years, Yes. I don't know. You know, it's kind of like an, um, an NFL star, an NBA star that makes 20 million and then they they don't play anymore. Yeah. Then what? In a generation or two, then what? Yeah. Is that a lost moment? There's so much powerful in that example. I, I hadn't heard about it in the news. Thanks for sharing it. Um, and first of all, that black vacation destination, period, that in itself, full stop, was like, whoa. <laughs> in the mm -hmm. early 1900s, you know, and I think about, uh, you know, an area that I want to learn more about, which is right after the Civil War and how, yeah, there were these period, there were these, there was this period of time. Oh, goodness, I've just forgotten the, the name of that era. <laughs> but where Black people actually were building communities were building wealth, right? And before there was a smackdown, before Jim Crow came um, um, into action. And so just that there was a place that uh, Black people could build wealth from over time, just that there was a way that you could do that is kind of wild to me. And 
Yes, but then always the government can snatch and they can use eminent domain. We've seen that all all over the U.S. That's happened in Boston as well. You know, parts of the what we consider the South End, um, one of the well more well-to-do neighborhoods in Boston. Parts of it were taken by eminent domain by government entities and black families forced to move out. So it's and, and creating wealth for others. So here's an instance where the family was able to recover something of that wealth. But as you say, if you're looking back generations, is that actually true repair, true recovery? Um, and we know though that it's a lost opportunity for that land to be activated in the way that's gonna benefit black people in the way that it would have originally. So it's so complicated because you're trying to think about individual wealth building and kind of societal benefit. Um, so I, I appreciate you bringing up that example. Yeah, I mean, it just seemed like a pretty relevant and poignant one. And is the period of time you're thinking about the Harlem Renaissance? That's the one that popped oh, up. my that's so silly. Thankfully, we actually have a historian coming on today so he can quickly... <laughs> I think my brain is still waking up. Um, and no, not the Renaissance. The earlier, post, post, right, immediately post-war. Um, oh, Reconstruction. I was like, it starts with an R. It starts with an R. Reconstruction. Yeah. Okay. That, you know, so to me, it's, you know, it's, that was probably a legacy of what happened in Reconstruction is that this family actually had this much land and that there was a place that Black people went to for vacation. That's wild to me. You know, um, but should yeah. it be though? But should it be because yeah. I mean, the, the yeah. Inkwell and Martha's Vineyard existed already, and then I'm sure there must have been places outside of New York, and then Black Wall Street in Oklahoma. I mean, like these places existed. I think regionally we know about you, them. No, 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 you're right, Derek. But I, you're, I'm underscoring exactly what you've just said, which is the only other two things I could think of were Martha's Vineyard and Black Wall Street. Th that's it, it, you know, these few, few spots. So this is one I hadn't heard of, this beach in California. I hadn't, I hadn't heard of anything on the West Coast like that, you know, but yeah. it's few and far between. Yes, we can be proud that those existed, but it was so short-lived and there were so few of these. And so, and maybe there are more that you're right. Maybe there's more that we didn't know about and we'll learn about some of that with our historian guest today. Let's do it. Do you want to do a quick introduction? Yeah, I'm very happy to invite today's guest who's a dear friend of mine, Chris Manjapra is the Stearns Trustee Professor of History and Global Studies at Northeastern University here in Boston. He writes books on empire and anti-colonialism. He fosters collaborations that cross divides between campuses and communities, engaging the arts and humanities for social action. He directs the Humanities Action Lab at Northeastern, as well as Black History in Action, a nonprofit dedicated to the preservation and reactivation of Black-owned community space. And I know a little about that Black-owned community space. It's a historic Black church in Cambridge with its own very special history connected to um, the Garvey movement. Um, and I'm just delighted to welcome Chris today because he's a wealth of knowledge. Hey there, Melanie. Nice to be here. Good to see you, Derek. You too. Thanks for joining us today. Pleasure. So you heard the two of us kind of going back and forth around is this reparations, is it not reparations? Should they have kept the land? How does this fit into the broader historic context? Why don't you start us off? Why don't you set us straight, Professor? Tell us how we should start putting a framework, putting this all into a framework. 
Sure. So let me start with a simple um, argument, claim, um, proposal for us to discuss, which is that uh, reparations is about system-wide change. That's what I want to propose to you. Um, and then maybe we can talk about it more. That in other words, if changes are not made that don't change the system, then they're not quite reparations. So mm -hmm. That is kind of a, something that's interesting. What do we mean by system-wide change? But let me give you a concrete example of where we are in terms of the system as it works today. I don't know if we're, we're aware, but um, as of 2020, um, it, it, we, we have data that shows that black home ownership, the difference between black home ownership, home ownership and white home ownership is the largest gap that it has been in 100 years. So the gap the racial gap, if you like, of home ownership in the United States um, has grown and it's more than it's been in a century. Um, and then like another piece of data that we could add to that is if we look at what's happened um, after the Great Recession, what we call the period of great recovery since 2010, the, the group, the community in the United States that has suffered the most or in, in relation to all the others has recovered the least economically speaking, and in terms of wealth, is the Black communities of the United States. So there is this very present system problem that we face. And um, I think that's kind of just a beginning bit of a reality check <laughs> as we start talking about what the reparation struggle uh, today is all about and how it fits into a very, very long uh, movement. So that example of Bruce's Beach, then, if that's not reparations, is there another way we could call it or any system change has to start with something so if that if we look if we're if we were to fast forward 10 years and more of this had happened could we say that that was the start of systems change or is it just a one-off great question i um i don't know if it's just mincing words but sometimes i like to talk about reparative actions or reparative practices and I, I, I separate that from the project, the struggle for reparations. Um, I think we can see and get excited about and be part of many, many different kinds of reparative practices. And those are all so important. And the more people that participate in reparative practice, the better. Um, in fact, that's how movements continue and grow in momentum. Um, I think that going back to the 1700s at the time when slavery there are many different institutions of slavery around the world. And as these were beginning to end, Black communities always from the beginning struggled for reparations. And so what they were struggling for was the transformation of a whole system. And they weren't willing to stop or to um, satisfy with anything less than true change. So I think we can hold both of those together. We can be interested in participating um, in reparative practices while also insisting on the need for reparations. That's what I think. Yeah. Okay. I think we need both. Okay. So how does it begin? Where does it begin? Well, I think, you know, I, I love the theme that you and Melanie um, have been discussing throughout the whole podcast series of, of land and wealth and, and real estate. And um, I love the term blacklining. Um, I think that is inherently uh, deeply set within the reparations tradition, actually. I think that what um, Black communities have asked for since the 1770s, when the first reparations movement started, has been a place where they may be, where people, where our people may be safe, 
um, where they may cultivate wealth, where they may transfer that wealth over generations and grow that wealth. And all of those relate to our relationship to land and to land property. So I think that's actually a really good place to begin. Okay, great. And are there any movements that you're aware of, either past or present, um, maybe in the past 100 years or so that sort of might be more familiar? So Melanie and I were talking about things that we individually are and are not familiar with. Are there things that we may have missed in our conversation or you know, just anything that might sort of help any of the viewers think about reparations and the movements in a different way? Yeah, so very much so. Uh, maybe I can like raise up um, a few examples and I, I'll begin from things that are more recent and then go back in time. So first of all, we have with us still um, a very powerful reparations leader named Shirley Sherrod, um, Shirley Sherrod, who's located in Georgia. And back in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, Shirley Sherrod led something called the New Communities Movement. And that was this really powerful um, common land for black people movement. There were thousands of acres of land that participated, that were part of that, um, that, that collective movement for ownership. Um, and so I, I point to that as this really uh, impressive moment. Um, and that's actually inspired a lot of the uh, Black collective movements that are happening in our present day. Um, Shirley Sherrod's New Communities Movement was also happening kind of at the same time, a little bit after Fannie Lou Hamer's um, really inspirational and powerful Freedom Farm movement, and I sent you a couple images if you want to share share those. So, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer um, from Mississippi uh, did amazing things, like ran for Senate as a black woman with two other black women in the early 1960s, even when they knew that uh, the racial election system was not going to allow them to win. You know, they these are people who always um, did and believed that the impossible is possible, and I think that's like a key of how reparationists work. They don't, we don't just satisfy for what the system says is possible. We actually create the quote unquote impossible like right now. And so Fannie Lou Hamer in the 1960s created a freedom farm in the Mississippi Delta, one of the least, um, one of the least served, um, you know, parts of already a very racial, ra racialized state um, where the history of slavery was like just a couple generations away. She created this 700 acre farm in which there was subsistence farming. They were growing crops to feed themselves, not to, you know, grow cotton to sell it on a market at some far away place. There were um, schools that she created. There was a kindergarten. There was health care. You know, it, that's, that's a little bit of like an encapsulation of what reparations is about. It's saying once land is secured and once Black communities have safe access to the use of their lands, then everything else can follow from that. Health, mm -hmm. right? Um, food security, um, security from uh, racial policing, um, access to credit. There's so many different features of our well-being which are in fact rooted in the land. And, and I just want to draw a couple other examples. So if we go back before 
the 1960s, we might come to, you know, the 1930s, in which there were, again, very powerful collective land movements by Black families. Um, Robin D.G. Kelly writes about that, um, wrote about a famous book about that. And then I would just, one last example, you go back to the 1850s, 1860s, and earlier, especially in the Caribbean, and they had there these, what they were called the the, the freedom villages. After the ended, um, yep. Black families gathered together. They often purchased land uh, and collectivized it and used that in order to create new futures. So land has always been this really important theme. And I'm, I guess I'm adding a little wrench in the story when I'm also emphasizing it's not, it's not, it's not always been private property and land. It's yes. been collective property. Um, and collective benefits in land have really been the central part of the reparations vision for hundreds and hundreds of years. Hmm. I'm going to throw out this question. It's actually for both of you. Um, so Chris on the sort of academic historic side and Melanie more on the practitioner in terms of the real estate industry side. So let's say that reparations as a movement really picks up speed, really gains some more traction. Systems begin to change. But as systems change, other things around the system, other things that are touched by the system can also change. So in the context of these conversations we're having, where it's around building wealth, having wealth, preserving wealth, if the system changes, could the method of building and preserving wealth also change? So that even if Black people are gaining more and more land, they're gaining the reparations through land, even if that happens, could the measure of wealth also change? I love that question. Um, I'm taking a note as you're speaking because um, it's making me kind of go back to something I just said, and I want to say it in a little bit of a different way and spiced now with something in, which is that, you know, what is wealth, right? Yes. I mean, wealth is, um, it's like a suite of, of things, and it includes um, the ability to uh, have income streams that you can accumulate and pass on to your descendants, um, assets that you can pass on to your descendants, and that can be accumulated. But it has these other features, which are actually interrelated, like access to good health care, access yeah. to education, right? Which, as we know, education is how um people grow and descendants of our family myself as a descendant of folks who did not have the level of education that i have you know that has been a form of accumulated wealth that that i've benefited from um so thinking about food and access to good food thinking about um safety right and how wealth protects us from arbitrary violence um and then also thinking about cultural sovereignty like that that's another thing that when we have wealth we actually have more sovereignty over the kind of music we listen to the kind of books we read the kind of ideas we entertain on a daily basis the way we use our bodies right the way we relate with other bodies and then how that can be transferred over time to descendants all of those things i want to think of as under this umbrella of wealth and I also want to wonder, based on your question, Derek, how all of those might actually be rooted somewhere, like in something very concrete, right? For example, in ownership of land. Mm -hmm. 
or other or other other transferable assets. Like there's something about how these more abstract ideas of what wealth is, they need to be rooted in something that carries that wealth forward and can be transferred over generations, right? Yes. That can kind of grow and be protected and can accumulate. Protected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's that protected part that has been a, an underlying question for me, um, both throughout many of the conversations that we've had, but also just in the construction of this podcast, one of the questions that Melanie and I have have been struggling to not really define, but to figure like, who should we have this conversation with and like, or should it just be interlaced throughout all the conversations is, what does it mean to say that a Black community or any Black community has assets and wealth when we've seen in history the many times that it's been destroyed. So whether it's that um, Black Village, Seneca Village in New York City, Black yes. Wall Street in Oklahoma, um, there are Black towns in Florida, I mean, all over the south side of Chicago, through the highway development, the interstate highway development in the 1950s yes. and 60s. I mean, we've seen over and over again that, you know, wealth is built and then wealth is, is intentionally destroyed. And so I've been thinking about, okay, sure, we can get this reparations, but then what protects it after? I don't know if you're prepared to talk about that, but you know, that's just a thought that I've been having over these, these conversations. So like, how is this protected? How is it maintained and protected? Well, that's exactly the point. Sorry, go ahead, Melanie, go ahead, Melanie. No, it's the same, it, it, I guess I'm just adding my layer of that question, which is, how is it protected ongoing? You know, if, if Chris, what you're saying is that the wealth is rooted really in the land and you root something and it grows, you know, so as this thing is taking root, as it's growing uh, in this modern era, um, how is protection laced into that? How is protection part of the root system? How is protection part of like this kind of, I'm, I'm envisioning kind of like an encasing around something that's growing up around in the ground, something that's actually uh, like a membrane that's wrapping the root, you know? So like what, I think, I think as we go into this conversation, you almost can't, you can't go into it without feeling fear. You know, like I feel that I feel like, right. You know, when you talk, Derek, you're mentioning neighborhoods in Chicago. I'm like, yes, you're right. But in my brain, I immediately write them off. Like I have a thought and I write it off because I know, about all the corruption. I know about the political corruption, the, the, the conspiring between police, government entities and big business in New York City and Chicago, perfect examples that have wiped out communities where black people were building something stable. So it's almost like you walk right into a feeling of fright for me. And um, so how do we do it in a way, if we're trying to think about this era, doing it in a way where Frankly, I think the culture is more conscious and more wanting to talk about these things. And it's not just black people leading these conversations. People claim broadly to care about equity. <laughs> so, so how do you approach that? How do you approach that black civic engagement, black wealth building in a way that automatically has protection side by side with access? I guess is what I'm I'm wondering as as my layer of that question. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, asking this, these questions um, is all the more um, urgent 
in this moment, just given where we are in terms of political economy, you know, yes. we look at the fact that um, white families are today in 2023 twice as likely to own homes than black families. And they have on average eight times the average family wealth than black families. You know, I'm speaking to you from Boston, which infamously is a city in which uh, last time it was measured, you know, white family wealth is about $250,000 per family. Black family wealth is $8, right? Um, that is also not just an American story, because if we look at black Britain, um, black British families average family wealth is about 30,000 pounds. Average white family wealth is about 280,000 pounds. So it's just, we're talking about these really huge gaps. And like I mentioned at the beginning, those gaps are not um, narrowing, they are increasing, yeah. right? So we're in a time in terms of the system in yes. which the system is actually operating in a much more aggressive way. Yes. Um, and in a much more racial way in terms of like racial inequities. And we are also in a time in which we do have, we are noticing more openness and awareness around these inequities. And it's it's kind of rising to the surface and it's troubling public discourse and public yes. consciousness. So it's a really, really important time. Um, and it's a really important time to both be really real <laughs> in terms of how systemic the problem is and how ongoing it is, um, and also to thereby try to think more clearly together um, in terms of what the remedies are. Like what does recovery, there, there, there are solutions, right? Yeah. Um, it's just that we have to be sure that our solutions are not um, in some ways like playing into the dynamics yeah. that are the problem. Uh, and, and to be, and I guess I'm gonna put my cards on the table now. Please. That when, um, you know, some people say that reparations is about cutting a particular um, amount of a check and distributing it, <clears throat> distributing it to um, a, let's say, a, a designated group of recipients, I don't think that that's reparations. I think that could be a reparative practice, right? But I don't think that's reparations because it doesn't address these yawning inequities, like it doesn't get to the systemic problems. And there are ways of getting to systemic problems. It's not like it's impossible, but it takes something much more concerted. It takes um, really asking questions about redistribution, you know, yes. and redistribution is going to be a complicated question because it means that we got to redistribute. It, it, it can mean multiple things. It can mean actually changing property rights, right? And how they work, i.e. taking land from some landholders and moving it to others, for example, public lands, right? Government is a landholder, giving some of those public lands to communities who have been um, affected by the long history of racism and slavery. It can also, however, relate to changing use, uses of land, you know, um, the, the ways that different communities are given guaranteed use of land, um, thinking about like even rental um, dynamics in cities or thinking about the ways that private property owned by governments by uh, so not by governments but by private institutions like mm, universities or churches or businesses how um, that these kinds of institutions might give over the use of their properties to um, other communities disadvantaged communities racialized communities for their own 
interest and use and to, to use them to create wealth in, in um, you know, in their own ways um, for some particular periods of time during a week or during a month. So I think that they're like really creative ways that we can think about what it means to change and redistribute wealth. Um, and it might be, it might involve both transferring land title. I'm not saying that's not important, but I think that there are a whole other suite of ways that we could think about changing access. I think that was your word, Melanie, um, to, to land. Uh, and some of that might be time-based as well, you know, so. You know, it's interesting that you bring up institutional actors like universities and government agencies and having them think about how they can transfer land or use land differently for the benefit of community use. And for some reason, maybe because I heard this in the news recently, I started, my mind flashed over to the Benin bronzes and the Parthenon marbles, all that stuff that's in the British Museum and other museums in Europe and how they have said, we don't want to give these to, we shouldn't give these to the countries where they originally came from because we're not sure you can protect them. And I was kind of thinking, I wonder if institutions and government actors might say the same thing in the case of these communities that have been disenfranchised and disadvantaged for so long. But then, you know, if you look at the news recently, these museums and the, at least the British Museum had thefts. They can't even protect what they have. So there needs to be a rethinking generally. I agree. There needs to be a rethinking generally around what does it mean to own something that's yours? What does it mean to own something that's yours? And also, what does it mean to share these things and use them in common use? Melanie, why are you, why are you cracking up? Just the semantics. What does it mean to own something that is yours? You know? Could be quotation marks yours. Yes. yes. Mm. It's just, well, because I actually was thinking about it in reverse. I'm thinking about uh, Benin. I'm thinking about the places where these artifacts, these art pieces are from. You sh would say that those are the owners, those are the original owners. And mm -hmm. can they own what is theirs? That's all. My brain was laughing about that. Can you recover something? Is it, you know, you can argue up and down about the formation of the United States that yes, land had to be taken and this and that. And can you actually prove that individual uh, black landowners, let's say Seneca village, like owned the land. Okay. But if you're talking about art things that came from an actual territory where those things were seized from that territory, it's hard to say that the people of that territory didn't own that thing. So that's why I was laughing. You know, like it's it's so deeply, there's something so deeply ironic. There's like something painfully ironic about all of these conversations about how do you even take possession? How, <laughs> who gets to say that they own something, even including land in the United States? Yeah, I, I love that point. And it also makes me think about how even just reversing the ownership relationship um, you know, kind of sheds a different kind of light. So to say those objects, those Benin bronzes, um, those other cultural artifacts uh, taken from indigenous and black communities that are in these museums across Europe and across North America and other parts of the world, is it that we're talking about how the descendant communities um, own those objects or artifacts? Or are we talking about how in some ways those artifacts and objects actually own their descendant communities. They possess their descendant communities. You know, in other words, where is the agency of the ownership? And I think if we if we if we just invert that, 
it also ask, can ask us, it can help us to maybe open up the question around land ownership. Like, is it possible for people to own land? Or in a deeper sense, does the land own its people, right? And here, indigenous communities would certainly say that the land is the, land is the actor. The land owns its people. And, and the people respond to that, you know, that sovereign, that sovereign being. I also think that, you know, the black communities, by the way, black communities have, of course, in, entangled and meshed with indigenous communities of North America because of slavery for hundreds of years. And they also came from Africa with their own indigenous relationships to land, that there, that there, there's something really deep and profound about how black communities may not only be in pursuit of owning land that they have, um, that has been stolen from them, but doing something else, which is being responsive and responsible to the lands that actually own them, right? And reclaiming, recovering those relationships, which are actually deeply, like, um, deeply alive and vibrant relationships. People feel when they are not connected to their land. And I think that um, they, 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 they organize and they build movements to make sure that they, they get back into a right relationship with, with their land. So I think that's also a part of how, you know, we can think about this question of land ownership. Um, it may be that, that, that part of what we're saying is um, there's something like a an illegitimate claim to ownership yeah. of land, you know, that that may be underlined and um, in some ways legitimized by um, current property rights. And what we're trying to say is let's be let's be more kind of grounded here in how ownership actually works, and let's try to let's try to um, get outside of those more illegitimate mo ways of thinking of land ownership to really thinking about who legitimately does own land um, and should be owning land uh, and how that repair work needs to take place. I know it's a bit abstract, but- well, No, it's not. I'm like, geez Louise, Chris, did you just go there? So is that a thing? Is that a thing we can wrap our minds around? Like who legitimately owns land? I, I, I feel in my body, this notion of the land owning us. I, I, I almost feel like that's a generational kind of knowing that's in my body somehow. I, I can feel that and you saying it, I wanna allow time for that to seep into me even after this call, after this conversation. But for right this moment, who does legitimately own land? Well, I can tell you that, you know, when you look at the long history of like so I wrote you know my book Black Coast of Empire came out last year it's a lot about these processes to say when you look at how emancipations actually worked their nuts and bolts what you see is that they were actually a set of procedures um, and policies that uh, were really organized and designed to perpetuate the illegitimate property rights that initially had been grounded in slavery itself, the illegitimate property rights of slave owners and their descendants, and to also legitimate the ongoing dispossession of black families and black communities. Yeah. So that's unfortunately what emancipations actually were about. I mean, that, and it's like, I'm sorry to break the news to, 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 to folks. And there are a lot of people who have gotten quite upset with me for framing, you know, other historians for framing um, emancipation in this way. But if I can put it in a much simpler 
way, which is you look at what happened after the end of slavery. We had abolition. We did have uh, we did have um, Reconstruction for a period of time, but then we had Jim Crow. And then after Jim Crow, we had redlining. And then after redlining, we had urban renewal. And then after urban renewal, we had gentrification, right? And through all of this, we had various forms of segregation and discrimination. All of that is basically perpetuating a system of illegitimate property claims. You know, that, I mean, that's also what racism does. It perpetuates a system of illegitimate property claims. Yes, um, yes. So, if we recognize that, then I think it just helps us to maybe um, to maybe ask the big questions around what does system what does changing a system of illegitimate property claims involve? Like, what all must that involve? How big is that conversation? So then, the question isn't isn't actually the relevant question. Certainly, that is the most relevant question. But is it even relevant to say who legitimately? owns property like who i think the way we said it a little uh, just earlier was who are the legitimate property owners is that even a relevant question well it it it, it asks the question around power because in order for there to be a legitimate property owner someone has to be the one determining what is and is not legitimate so there's an issue of power that's there so yes that's a very important question because if we don't even resolve that or set a standard for what that is, then we could continue the current system or make it worse. I guess what I'm saying is, but I guess what I'm saying is, if we know that there are landowners, people who have deeds, who have title, and therefore they're able to accrue, further generate and accrue wealth by having this title and transferring it when they want to transfer it, we know that that's the system that we live with. So that maybe that's a moot thing. If you're talking about reimagining ways that people can reclaim access to ownership, we have to think about ownership more broadly rather than trying to um, uh, like, you know, adjudicate like, oh, this land is legitimately owned by me and, or this land is not legitimately owned by you, so therefore it's contested. So therefore we should be able to challenge it and maybe free it back up to the public. Maybe that's not that relevant. I don't know. So do you understand what I'm asking, Chris? I do, yeah. And I think it, it connects with the Bruce's Beach example. I mean, in some ways that that whole, what happened there is all based on um, the re- the recognition of illegitimate ownership, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there were there was a reparative practice that followed upon that recognition, and the and Bruce's what what's taking place at Bruce's Beach is actually part of a movement these days, which you know we could call like the Black Land Back movement, um, and there's also an Indigenous Land Back movement that I think is is is, is definitely distinctive. I don't want to claim in any way that they are at all the same, but you know these are two movements, and there is an overlap between them. They are gaining momentum today, um, and these movements are very much based on. First of all, recognizing and being clear about where illegitimate land ownership claims have been codified. Okay. Then asking, like, now what? What does yeah. a reparative practice around this involve? And and I think um, Bruce's beat shows that some concrete things happen once this recognition takes place. And there are a variety of other examples. Like, I'm, I can't remember the name of the, the group, but there is a group that's doing work, some really amazing work to actually identify where th- there can be documentation of like the stealing of 
Black people's land back in the 1920s and 30s. And then from that recognition and documentation, then pursuing a kind of um, reparative practice, which may be processed through courts, which may be more done at a kind of person-to-person, interpersonal level to say, now what? You know, how do we address this this history? Um, And let me, and I think I would just like circle back to that point we made at the beginning, which is, you could say, you know, is this reparations? It's not necessarily about is it reparations or not. It is. It is a, a point. It is. What's important to me is it's contributing to the movement, um, and and it's not just contributing to the movement by um, it's doing it by both chipping away at where illegitimate property ownership, yes. racial property ownership, is at work, but it's also doing something else very important. It's helping to change consciousness. Yes. To me, that's what the the true underlying core of the reparations movement has been that's been going on for 250 years. I think of reparations as an intellectual tradition. I mean, it's a it's a it's a way of of thinking um, about the world, and its pursuit, its underlying pursuit, is to change the way we see our world, right? To yes. change our consciousness, because if we change our consciousness, then new things become possible that otherwise seem impossible. Yes. So. And, and the, the, the way that um, property is encoded in, in like nation states, especially racialized nation states like the United States, there are many others, Britain and Europe as well, parts of Latin America, um, property is encoded in ways to make um, a certain consciousness about who owns and who doesn't own, who belongs and who doesn't belong, to make that set and like, you know, firm. So if you change consciousness, yes. you begin to change the ways that we can even start asking and, and answering questions around who owns land or does the land own us? And if so, what then, you know? Yes. <laughs> well, I, I think we're gonna have to leave it there because we know we, you have to go pretty soon, but I like that question of yes. what then as a great ending for this conversation and hopefully you'll come back at another time so we can continue the conversation. I have so many more questions for you. Yes. Um, but I love being in conversation with both of you. I learned, I learned I, you, 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 you just, you know, some of the things you said are going to really stick with me. So thank you. I enjoyed this very much and I'd love to come back. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. We really appreciate it. And for those of you who are watching, if you have any questions or comments, please leave your questions or comments in the question field. Uh, of whatever platform you're looking at. And we will try to send them to Chris if he has time. Uh, Hopefully we'll get a response back. But if not, if we can get him back on the show, then of course we will try to have those questions as part of our conversation then. Um, And I'll add that in the meantime, if you'd like to learn more about Chris, you can look up his book, Black Ghost of Empire. That title always makes me shudder. And it's on, it's in bookstores and online wherever you buy your books. Okay. Thank you everyone for joining the Black Landing Forum. We look forward to seeing you next time. Take care and be well.